We are undertaking a study of Revelation, the book of, the, the book of Revelation. Noticing right up front that it's singular. Please don't ask me about Revelations plural. That just demonstrates you haven't read it carefully. It's the Revelation singular, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, gave unto whom? First sentence, very important. The revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Unto whom? Interesting, isn't it? To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it, signified it, rendered it into signs by his angel, Angelos, his messenger, unto his servant John, who bore witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ of all the things that he saw. Blessed is, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. It's amazing how many problems go away if you just read it carefully. First of all, it's the only book in the Bible that has the audacity to pronounce a special blessing on the reader. All of you here assembled are entitled to claim a unique blessing as a result of this adventure we're going to embark on. Because it says so. No other book of the Bible promises that. Many books of the Bible encourage you to read the Bible, the Scriptures collectively, or individually, certainly. But only one book has the audacity to say, that says, in effect, read me, I'm special. But I want to call your attention to another word here. They that hear the words of this prophecy. It is a book of prophecy. There are many different schools of, of, of approach to the book of Revelation, most of which we're going to ignore. The fact that it had only local application, a preterist, a historicist, all those we're going to ignore. We're going to read it for what it says. We're going to recognize that it is part of the 66 books that we glibly call the Bible. 66 books penned by 40 authors over thousands of years that are an integrated message system. Every number, every place, name, every detail is there by design. Supernatural engineering. And that's a view that I've had for, what, 40 years? And it pervades most of our expositional materials. But one reason I make reference to it is one of the benefits of our gathering together over the next few weeks studying this book will be you'll have an opportunity to conclude for yourself the integrity, the integral nature of the, not just the book of Revelation, the whole Bible. Because to do this properly, we'll end up going into virtually every other book in the Bible. Revelation consists of 404 verses that contain over 800 references from the Old Testament alone. And uh, not, we won't go through each one, but we will have the, they will be in the notes that accompany the tapes. Well, we went through chapter 1. One of the things that uh, is interesting about chapter 1, this is everybody that studies one of the books of the Bible generally attempts to outline it. And if you take any of the books, you can find many different competent expo expositors or commentators that will outline the book. This is a book that contains its own divinely inspired outline in verse 19 of chapter 1. This is all by way of review from last time. And if you weren't here last time, obviously you can get the tapes, but I'll try to hit some of the highlights just so we can keep the continuity here. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says to John, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The Greek word is metatauta. It's sort of a flag. It's a signal phrase. We'll come back to that. But you'll notice there's three parts to verse 19. Write the things which you hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things, metatauta, hereafter. 
And that divides the book into three parts. The first part is what John, by the time you get to verse 19, what he has just completed is a vision of the risen Christ. And verses uh, four on through four through 18 describe this vision that John had while being on the island of Patmos of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, "Write the things which you have seen." What has he seen? The chapter we'll call it chapter one. Then write the things which are present tense, and that turns out to include chapters two and three. Seven letters to seven churches, which will be the subject of tonight and the next few meetings. And then after that, he says, then write the things which shall be after these things. And that starts chapter 4 onwards. So the first thing we realize, even though they're unequal in size, there's three divisions. Chapter 1, chapter 2 and 3, and chapter 4 to the end. Are we together? One of the interesting things, and I won't take the time tonight to go through this vision of Jesus Christ that's in chapter 1. But as you get into chapter 1, you'll discover a number of phrases that are applied to Jesus Christ. Some of them may be strange to your ears. And you'll discover if you investigate them with a concordance, they come out of the Old Testament. But there are a number of descriptors or titles of Jesus Christ. Let's take for an example, well, I'll just take verses 4 and 5 as examples. John 1, 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And it goes on. That's the Trinity, the Father, the Holy Ghost, and the Son. The Holy Ghost is, is referred to as the seven spirits. That's a strange, that sounds strange to a New Testament reader. And yet it's taken from the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 11, where you have described the sevenfold spirit, the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold application. So it sounds strange to the New Testament reader, but it's familiar if you really know the book of Isaiah. But we'll move on. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince or ruler of the kings of the earth. Ruler is a better term than prince. The faithful witness. That will be his title, in effect, in chapters 2 and 3, where it speaks of the church through which is, it is his witness. And the first begotten of the dead, in chapters 4 and 5, we'll discover the kinsman redeemer of Adam steps forward to take the seven-sealed book, which he's not eligible to do but for the cross and but for his resurrection. And we'll deal with that when we get there. And then the rest of the book deals with the, his taking up his rulership of the kings of the earth. So you're going to discover these labels are not only interesting and fruitful in chapter 1, they become hooks or identities throughout the rest of the book. You can even make a list of the different identities and you track where they're used throughout the rest of the book. You'll, as you start doing that, you begin to realize this is a very, very skillfully structured piece of work. The last time we went through that vision in detail. But the key thing, it's interesting that we have introduced in this chapter this concept of the seven churches, represented by seven lampstands and seven stars. And those are introduced in the text of chapter 1, but interestingly enough, when you get to verse 20, the last verse of the chapter, they're identified for you as to what they mean. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. By the way, it's lampstands, not candlesticks, if you have King James. The word in the Greek is lacuna, which is a, a light bearer. Not a source of light, it's a light bearer. And lampstand is, of course, the Exodus 25 example, etc. Anyway, um, in the Old Testament days, we had the menorah, the seven branch candlesticks. And here in Revelation, we have seven individual candlesticks representing seven key churches. I'll come back to those uh, in a moment. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of those seven churches. 
and the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven churches. So these churches are here portrayed in the book as light bearers, seven. And what we're going to encounter, of course, in chapters two and three are letters to these seven churches. One of the things, as you can probably tell, I've spent this, the book of Revelation happens to have been a hobby of mine for some 40 years. And it's, there are many, many fascinating things in the book of Revelation. It's essentially in code, but every code is explained somewhere else in the scripture. But I would maintain that the majority of its value for you and I are in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to see the throne of God and we're going to get it as the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and all kinds of really interesting things. But the most fascinating, the most fruitful part of the book are the two chapters that we're about to plunge into. Seven letters penned, in effect, by Jesus Christ himself to seven churches. And one of your assignments from last time was to determine in your own mind, or at least ask the question substantively in your own thoughts, why those seven? The first one's Ephesus. That may not surprise us. We know the book of Ephesians, and Ephesus is very prominent, as we'll shortly explore. But Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, you never have heard of those places unless you just happen to be interested in the Middle East in ancient times. If you read the New Testament, you're surprised that where's the church of Jerusalem? Where's the church of Rome? Or better yet, the church of Antioch, which was their headquarters, Paul's headquarters, you know, in, in his evangelism. And you can go through a whole list of churches that, that, that they're puzzling, in a sense, by their absence. Colossians, Philippi, Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Miletus, Hierapolis, Troas. You can make a list of churches that are prominent in the New Testament that are not mentioned. So one of the things that you want to have in the back of your mind is why did the Lord Jesus Christ pick these seven? Now you obviously are conscious of the frequency of the use of the number seven. In the Bible in general, in Revelation in particular, there are more sevens in there than you can count. There are hundreds many of them hidden in the text. But every place you look, you'll find seven, seven in the structure of the text. In the vision of chapter 1, there are seven features of Jesus Christ standing there. And so you'll discover sevens everywhere. So you say, well, that's just the structure of the text. Maybe. The word seven in the scripture appears to mean completeness. It doesn't mean holy, by the way. Um, Satan has seven heads. That sort of punctures that idea. The term seven is a term implying completeness. Uh, complete power, complete knowledge, complete whatever is being deal dealt with there. So these seven churches somehow represent collectively the body of Christ. Now, as we get into this a little bit, there's a couple of other comments I'd like to make. One of the things you're going to discover as we get it, I'll give you some of the conclusions we'll make when we finish the seven, looking back. But I'll tell you in advance so you can be alert to it. One of the things you'll discover as each of these, virtually every one of these churches had a perception of themselves that was wrong, that Jesus is correcting. Jesus includes in each letter a report card, the good news and the bad news. The first lesson to understand is even by the end of the first century, the church was failing. Some of the churches thought they were doing great and were really doing terribly. Other churches thought they were doing terribly and were doing great. 
One of the things you need to recognize is self-perception of the churches is being corrected by the Lord himself. Now, that's, we'll have a lot of lessons from that, of course. But what that should also alert you to, to is we don't look, if we're smart, we don't look to the church fathers of the early centuries as our example. Because already by the, by the time John is writing Revelation, which is, call it 95, 96, right in that time period, already the church is in trouble. So your only reliable model for what the church should be is the book of Acts. You know, it's prior to that. And that's interesting. Now, something else about these seven churches, and again, I'll mention in advance so that you can be uh, uh, forming some opinions about this, and, and uh, many of these things are controversial. I want, and my challenge to you is to come to your own, do your own diligent study and come to your own conclusions. But these seven letters to seven churches have at least four different levels of meaning. The first one is pretty obvious. These were, in fact, literal local churches. Sir William Ramsey excavated them. There's archaeological background on these churches. They had problems, apparently, that fit the letters. So there is a local, direct, uh, first-century application of these letters to those churches. So that's the first issue. We'll just call it the local thing. But something else you'll notice, all seven letters are sent to all seven churches along with the rest of the book of Revelation. They're like cover letters in a sense. But they didn't just send the letter to Ephesus to Ephesus. The letter to Ephesus went to all In other words, all seven got all seven letters. Each letter has a very key phrase in it. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. In other words, all the churches would benefit by the letters to all the churches. So I'm going to call the second level of meaning admonitory. I'm going to suggest the possibility that all seven churches, elements of all seven churches, are prevalent in all churches. It's very conventional and popular to, to visualize your own church as a church of Philadelphia. And as you go through this, you'll see why. Philadelphia church does pretty well with some very interesting things. But I've got some bad news for you. Every church has elements of all seven. There is some of Thyatira, some of Pergamos, Sardis, Laodicea, everywhere. And I realize that in this large assembly we have many different fellowships uh, assembled. That makes it, by the way, that's helpful to me because I can speak very freely. I'll have something in the study to offend everyone. You know, we'll play, we'll play no favorites. So the point is the message of each church applies to each church to some extent. That's the second. Third level of meaning. How many of you have an ear? Can I see a show of hands? That's about 90%. Okay, the rest of you can't hear them. The Holy Spirit says, he that hath an ear. That's personal. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a third level of meaning, for lack of another label, I'll call homiletic, personal. Personal uh, example, personal application, personal uh, application. That's three levels. Now it's the fourth level that'll turn out perhaps to be the most provocative. Many, many commentators, and you'll form your own conclusions by your own research, but many, many commentators, I'm among them, notice that in the particular details of these letters and in the particular order they're placed, they lay out a history of the church prophetically. 
That doesn't surprise me at all, frankly. The book of Acts covers about, what, 30, 40, 50 years. And yet we've had, what, 2,000 years of church history. It wouldn't surprise me at all that the Lord has provided a testimony, prophetically, of this period of time. And interestingly enough, the more you study these seven letters, and the more you're sensitive to the spiritual history of Christendom from the first century onward, the more fascinating it becomes. You'll notice that this lays out a history of the Christian church, and if you put the letters in any other order, it doesn't fit. So I think this is more than coincidence, it's more than someone's contrivance. But again, I'll let you uh, explore that. Now, one of the things you're going to discover about the book of Revelation, that probably should mention right up front so you know where we're headed, you really won't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand its Jewishness. When you go through the rest of the book, later in the book, chapter 4 on, you'll discover all kinds of strange things that only make sense if you realize that Israel has resurfaced as a major player in God's plan. And that's quite contrary to Paul's epistles, where he, he says he divides the world into Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Quite distinct. And, and Israel is set aside, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, in Romans 11:25, etc. We know from the study of Daniel 9, if you're going to do background for this book, you really need to understand carefully the last four verses of Daniel 9. We'll take that up to some extent later on in our study. But I want to, when you study that, you'll discover that God laid out for Daniel, Gabriel communicated to him God's plan for Israel. involved 70 weeks of years. The first 69 are contiguous, but there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. There's a seven-year period that Daniel 9 sets out as forthcoming. But there's a gap, a strange, mysterious gap, between 69th and 70th week of Daniel. And that gap, clearly from Daniel's prophecy, involves at least 38 years, but we've experienced from history that at least it's been almost you know, over 1,900 years. But the point is, this gap, this interval, this period, this mysterious thing we call the church, is destined for an end. There's a time when the church is complete. Following which, all kinds of wild things are going to happen. And that's what Revelation chapter 6 through 19 details. It's basically an expansion of the 70th week of Daniel. I mention that as a view. It's a view I hold, which doesn't make it correct. It's just a view I lay out in front of you to challenge you to do your own homework and explore these things. But the point is, Revelation 2 and 3, in effect, is a detailing of what occurs in that gap, that interval, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you to do a careful study uh, on the 70 weeks of Daniel. To get ahead of it a little bit, but so you understand where we're going... You all have a chart. And if you examine this chart, across the top, you have Ephesus, you have the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And you have under each label the text from the King James translation. But the main value of this chart is to show you that there is an intended structure of the letters. And understanding this structure is very useful if for no other reason than certain letters have certain elements omitted of that structure. And those omissions turn out to be provocative. And one of the, in, each, in each letter, there's first of all the name of the church, and each, the name of each church, the meaning of each name, turns out to be relevant to the message of that, in that church. In each letter, Jesus uses a title of himself. He selects a phrase from chapter 1. 
But the particular phrase he selects is relevant to the theme of the letter. Then in each letter he has the good news. He goes through your A's on the report card. I know your works. That's the first thing. Jesus Christ is where in the book of Revelation? He's in the midst of the candles of the candlesticks, of the lampstands. Where's Jesus Christ? In the midst of the churches. Where are the angels of the messengers of the churches? In his hand. Say, gee, he's mixing metaphors. Okay, we grant him that. He's entitled. But the point is, he's in control, and he's in the midst of us. But here he's writing the report cards for these churches. He gives them the good news, which I've labeled here in a box called commendation. All but two churches have good news. There are two churches that don't have any good news. It's going to be kind of interesting, because when you get to Thyatira, the Catholics are going to be very uncomfortable. But if Thyatira is the Catholics, and Sardis is the, is the Protestants. Protestant commentators had a field day at the expense of the Catholics detailing the background of Thyatira. Well, if that's the case, they got a real embarrassment coming, because Sardis has nothing good said about it. That's kind of blow to many people. Sardis and Laodicea will deserve some special attention. But then Jesus goes to the criticisms of the church. It's interesting that two churches have no criticism. Smyrna, for reasons we'll come to when we get there, and Philadelphia, which everybody embraces. If I took a vote, I'm sure all of you would declare that you're members of the Philadelphia church. And we'll spare you that right now. And then, of course, there's an exhortation. Every church has an exhortation. There's also, at the end of the letter, a promise to the overcomer. Each letter... It closes, in effect, with a promise to the overcomer. But there's something else that occurs in each letter. There's a sort of a key phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That phrase occurs in each of the seven letters. Something I'm calling to your attention, most scholars, I think, seem to miss it, is that the promise to the overcomer is after that phrase. In other words, it's like a P.S., If you look at that, he that hath an ear phrase as the closing of the letter, the first three letters have the promise to the overcomer as a postscript. The last four letters have the promise to the overcomer within the letter. Now, you can take two views of that. You can say, well, that's just coincidence, or who knows, just dismiss it. But if you have the view I have of the Bible, nothing is there by accident. Everything is there by design. I could bore you all evening with examples where the Holy Spirit will alter the text or in, in a, in, imply a comma that changes, that has profound significance. I believe the Holy Spirit hovers over this, and I, I personally regard that, first of all, as being significant. Part two of that view, then, is, okay, what significance is it? And I'm going to leave that for you to think about, and we will deal with that as we go. But I'm going to suggest whatever else it does, it groups the first three letters with something in common, and the last four letters with something in common. <laughs> And I will deal with that as we get to it. But I want to sensitize you right at the front to look at these letters and study these letters with great, great care. Well, before we do anything else, let's go ahead and jump in to the first seven verses of chapter 2, book of Revelation. Unto the angel, or angelos, or messenger. By the way, there are two different views about these angels. Many, many commentators feel they are simply the pastors of those churches. The word angelos is a pragmatic term meaning messenger. And is used that way occasionally in the New Testament. But generally, the word angelos is a supernatural agent of some kind. 
most commentators I've looked at tend to believe the, that there is an angel assigned to each church and that's the messenger. Others feel that it's just a messenger of the pastor. doesn't matter, by the way. As you explore those, it will not alter your view of the book. It, the, the idea that it's just the pastor does have a problem because it's not clear that in the very early church they had a single pastor anyway. You follow me? That's something that emerges later. But in any case, uh, we'll, we'll leave that, con- that, that issue unresolved and just move on. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them who are evil, and hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored, and hast not fainted. Pretty good so far, huh? Then verse 4 we get a heavy word. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from where thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy lampstand out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So ends the the epistle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. Well, first of all, so we don't get carried away too much with the the spiritual applications here, let's recognize that, let's talk a little bit about what Ephesus was. Ephesus, Tacitus records that it was founded about 1400 B.C. It's a very, very ancient city. It was an early temple to the mother goddess and ancient Hittite fertility deity who subsequently became later identified with Diana. Uh, when colonists uh, from Athens settled there about 1100 B.C. So this is early stuff. This is like before the time of David. In the middle of the 6th century B.C., now we've gone ahead to about the time of Daniel, Babylonian captivity, etc. The Lydians captured the city. Croesus, their king, was routed by the Persians in 541. In other words, about two years before the fall of Babylon to the Persians. And Ephesus was joined to other cities in their own in confederation. It was about this time that its primary deity became identified with Diana or Artemis, depending on which language you're talking about. Ephesus was involved to its own disadvantage in the Peloponnesian and Persian Wars and served as a key naval base. It had a very, very unusual harbor initially. In 334 B.C. it fell to the Macedonians under Alexander. And after his death, after Alexander died, Lysimachus, one of his four generals, became master of the city and added great improvements. So we're still about three, third century before the New Testament period. Ephesus unwisely sided, again it makes some bad political decisions, unwisely sided with Antiochus of Syria against the Romans. And eventually became a Roman capital province of Asia. So, in the Roman province of Asia. And it, so it's, it's a, a pawn of, of, of all these power struggles. Very jealously uh, regarded because of its unusual harbor. As a free city, it had its own municipal government and its own senate, which is mentioned both by Strabo and by Josephus. It's just a little background. Now, many of these events in their history get determined by geography. Uh, Ephesus was considered the queen of Asia, a proud capital of Ionia, and it was the chief harbor of proconsular Asia. That was the Roman province. Extremely wealthy, for obvious reasons. A very beautiful city. It was near the mouth of the river Keister, which is now lower meander. Uh, principal line of communication between Rome and all the eastern provinces, if you can visualize how important that would be. In other words, if you wanted to ship something from Rome to the eastern provinces, it typically would go through Ephesus. 
One major road ran eastward through a pass uh, to Sardis and then to Galatia and beyond. Another led to Magnesia up the valley of the river Meander to Iconium. And a third ran through uh, Colossae and Laodicea to the Euphrates. We'll be talking about more of those, about, uh, those later on. And, of course, all the trade with Greece and Italy uh, ran through the port regularly. Architecturally, it was superb. It had a theater that was 495 feet in diameter and held 25,000 people. In that ancient world, that was dramatic. That's mentioned, by the way, of course, in Acts 19. The marble way lined with statues and fountains ran from the temple of Artemis uh, through the city to the Magnesia Gate. The Arcadian Way, another main road from the theater to the harbor, was 1,735 feet long and 70 feet wide, with lined with columns and shops, and it was illuminated at night. The most outstanding feature of Ephesus was, of course, the temple to Diana, who's thought to be the daughter of Zeus, sister of Apollo, etc. The temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was four times as large as the Parthenon of Athens stood on a platform, 425 feet by 220 feet. The building itself was 340 by 165, with 120 ionic columns, um, each 60 feet high, and so forth. And, of course, characterized with ecstatic sexual rites uh, involving both male and female prostitutes. And the income was threatened, of course, by Paul's preaching, which ultimately led to his departure, as you recall, from the book of Acts. The temple, by the way, in addition to all that, was an asylum for criminals. Strange situation. Also, the, in Ephesus was the first bank in the world, and it functioned under the chief priests of the temple. Well, that brings us roughly to the New Testament period that we're sort of focusing on here, uh, and it was one of the largest cities of its day of the New Testament period. Its harbor gradually became unusable, and traffic was diverted to Smyrna. We're going to talk about Smyrna later. Ephesus was, of course, the center of arts and magic. Renowned all over the world for talismans and incantations, books and charms and stuff like that. In fact, you may recall Acts 19, they had a book burning, if you recall all that. You can, Acts 19 would be good background. 18, 19, and 20 is background to this evening's um, exploration. And you may recall Paul's first visit, of course, was to the Jewish community. Later in his second visit, he was driven from the synagogue, so he settles in the school of Tyrannus and, and, uh, and uh, spends a better part of two years there until the uproar that occurred about 58 A.D. And all this is in the last part of Acts 19, the first verse of chapter 20. And, of course, Ephesus becomes the center then of many of the missionary operations throughout Asia. It's interesting that after Paul, there were many imitators if you want to read, a, uh, well, I can't, I can't not look at some of the fun stuff. Let's let's stop and take a look at Acts 19. There's some really, if you're paying attention when you're reading the book of Acts, you can't help but crack up. The seven sons of Siva, huh? Verse 13. Um, there were certain vagabond Jews, exorcists, that took upon them to call over them who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, the chief of the priests, who did so. There are seven of these guys now. Get the picture. And one evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I want you to get the picture. These seven guys are running around exercising in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demon speaks out from one of these victims. You know, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who, who are you? And this one 
demon-possessed guy beats up all seven. Did the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded? It'd be fun to draft the shooting script for that, wouldn't it? That's a kick. I mention this because we're going to talk about deception. We're going to discover Paul when he gives the farewell address to the elders of the church at Ephesus. By then he can't get to Ephesus. He stops at Miletus for several reasons. The harbor, the Romans had stripped the land of timber, which caused erosion, and the silting started to fill up the harbor. If you look at satellite reconnaissance photographs today, you can see Ephesus about 20 miles from shore. Because over the years, the silt has made what at one time was the world's most coveted harbor into a swamp and a marsh. But anyway, Paul goes to Miletus and has his farewell address to his elders. We'll look at that when we get to it. Let's just go on here and get a few other things. So Paul, anyway, left Ephesus, journeyed through Macedonia, returned to Miletus for his famed farewell address. Um, I think in the interest of time, I'll let you look at that on your own. Uh, the, Paul's farewell address to the Ephesians. Well, let's see. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Let's, no, let's take a look at that. Turn back to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. I encourage you, as background for this letter, to read Acts 18, 19, and 20 to get the whole picture. But in the interest of time, we, we, uh, we'll just focus on this one particular thing. Verse 17 of Acts 20. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. In other words, he doesn't, he's trying to speak to the elders of Ephesus, but he checks into the port at Miletus and has them come to meet him there, if you will, which is nearby. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came to Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and trials which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have shown you and have taught you publicly from house to house, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing what things shall befall me there." except that the Holy Spirit witnessed every, every city, knowing that bonds and afflictions await me. But none of these things move me, neither count, count I my life dearer to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. What an incredible statement. See, that's your only protection against heresy or devious ideas, to expose yourself to the whole counsel of God. And that was Paul's boast. Very touching farewell that Paul is giving his dear, dear elders from the Ephesian church. But I want to continue here. Verse 28. He now gives them a warning. A warning. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Is that happening today? You betcha. Just flick on television. Flick on Christian television. And just take a good hard look. Verse 30. Also of our own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that for the 
space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I command you, commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them who are sanctified. And he goes on. Interesting warning that Paul gave the Ephesian elders. And by just continuing the New Testament period before we jump in, of course, Timothy later becomes apparently the bishop of the church at Ephesus. It's in Ephesus we find Achilla, Priscilla, Apollos, and all those people. 1 Corinthians was penned during his second visit. And Paul's epistle to Ephesus is probably written from Rome when he was in bonds. John is said to have spent time there and brought Mary. Remember, Mary was committed to John at the cross. John brings Mary to Ephesus, and her tomb is there. Her, her house is a shrine there now. John's, John apparently retired to Ephesus after Patmos and uh, is uh, apparently buried there. You may wonder, okay, what's happened to Ephesus since? Uh, after the New Testament. Let's do a little exposition of, of Ephesus, of the passage we just read. Acts 18, 19, and 20 is background. Paul's epistle to Ephesians is background. And John's epistles, especially his first epistle, was an Ephesian epistle. So those are all epistles you might read if you're really going to do your homework relative to this letter. But let's just take a look at it. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith, He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus selects of the many titles in chapter 1, he selects those that are very church central. A lampstand is a bearer of light, as I've mentioned. The oil that fed the lampstand is emblematic in Levitical terms of the Holy Spirit. I think most of you are familiar with that. Now, one of the things you first draw from this is Jesus is in the midst of the churches. He's here now. He also holds the churches in his nail-scarred hands. And we should, uh, that's all implied by the title he selects here. Verse 2, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them which uh, say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. It's kind of interesting. He says, I know thy works. Boy, how important it is to recognize that Jesus is very conscious of the achievements, the efforts, the undertakings of his church. How busy we get, how sometimes we lose sight of that. Jesus says, each of these lives, I know thy works, and thy work, and thy labor, and thy patience. The work, labor, and patience, by the way, may, you may recognize as echoes of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. What's missing there, of course, is love, hope, and ca- love and hope, which is the completion of the list in Thessalonians. They're missing here because they're casualties to the heresy hunting, which we'll see in a minute. But it's interesting what Ephesus did well was to test doctrines. Let's give, let's give them credit for the good news. Thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. What Ephesus did well was to prevent false doctrine, right? That should not surprise us, because we just got through reading Paul's admonition to the elders when he left them for the last time, said farewell. He warned them of the wolves that were going to try to come in, not sparing the flock, right? What we can infer, I guess, is they they took him to heart, and they diligently tested doctrines, false doctrines. And we find that, of course, in Acts 20 that we read. We also find, I won't take the time, but the first few verses of John, 1 John 4. 
The Apostle John mentions, talks, admonishes them to test doctrines. And there are many other passages we could spend a whole evening pointing out those passages, those admonitions, which have to do with keeping the church pure in terms of its adherence to the Word of God and not the doctrines of men. But Jesus continues in his commendation of them. He says, And hast borne and hast patience for my namesake, verse 3, and hast labored and hast not fainted. And by the way, if you count the commendations, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, how you can't bear them that are evil. You have tried them that say they are apostles. You hast borne and hast patience. For my namesake you have labored and has not fainted. How many are those? Seven. Good guess. Okay. But at this point, we hit the heavy stuff. Verse 4 starts with nevertheless. And in the context of the letter, that's a heavy, heavy word. The boss called you into his office. Well, you've done well. You've done this one, this and this. You've done pretty good on that sales meeting, whatever. Nevertheless, you're going to hear the pink slip coming, can't you? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. What does he have against him? Let's understand what Jesus has against. did a great job. You tested the false doctrines. You took care of that. Nevertheless, see, all of us in this room who are proud of the fact that we've ducked or gotten out of that heresy or that heresy, I'm no longer in X or Y. Great! Jesus might be saying to us, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. The, the, book, the epistle of Ephesians is about love. Left that you have has left your first love. The word first there is protos in the Greek. It's actually a superlative. It's not just first love in an order. It's the best love. The best love. First in rank, in a sense. It's the love of a spousal. Remember David, uh, when he he repented of his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, right? Restoring to me the what of my salvation? The joy of my salvation. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, speaks of the espousal love, which should be our relationship with, with God. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, Jesus says, If my people are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Interesting in the four things he calls, calls on us to do. Seek my face. We know how to be humble. We know how to pray. Seek his face. What does that mean? You see, I think it's all tied up in this concept of espousal love. It's interesting, in Galatians chapter 5.22, we have the lists of the, the fruit of the Spirit. The, list, the first in the list is what? Love. There are 20 references to that love in the epistle of Ephesians by Paul. So if you want to, that's why the epistle of Ephesians by Paul is excellent background for all of this. And what's the, one of the climactic parts of Paul's letter to the Ephesus, chapter 5, where he deals with the relationship between Christ and his church and he uses as his idiomatic model the husband and the wife it's interesting how God uses the marriage from Adam all the way through the scripture to communicate his most important truth his love relationship we talk about marriage in a biological sense procreation certainly we speak of it in a psychological sense two people joining to share life's joys and sorrows we speak of it in a sociological sense you know the molecule of the the tribe the community, the family, the, 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 the nation. The most important aspect of marriage is the supernatural basis of marriage. 
God has chosen to use your marriage as his mechanic to communicate to you his most intimate truths, the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5. I encourage you to uh, obtain a copy of my wife's recent book, The Way of Agape. Incredible. To under, really understand the love of God. It's, got, it's antithetical to human love. It's not, a, by analogy, anything like it. It's antithetical. Our love is conditional. His love is unconditional. Boy, to really understand what that means. To really understand God's love. To really understand God loves you. So that you can indeed love Him. I encourage you to, to undertake those studies. We have a little tape thing called the, the More Excellent Way, which just touches upon it. But if you want to get into serious, I encourage you to get it from my wife's materials. It's interesting. In Ephesus, they were never busier. Heresy, hunting, whatever. But they were so busy on the king's business, they had no time for the king. You know, I made my living doing mergers and acquisitions for 30 years. And financially very successful. But I didn't have time for my family. I presumed upon them. I didn't invest them. I didn't have time for him. I taught Bible studies. I didn't spend enough time sucking carpet. And I hope you aren't making the same mistake. Spend time with the king. That's what he created you for. I can raise from these stones, sons of Abraham, he said. Huh? He didn't create you for service. He created you for fellowship. Service is an opportunity. Fellowship. He wants devotion, not doctrine. doctrine. False doctrine should be purged. Doctrine is important. Devotion is more important. Interesting contrast between David and Solomon. If you and I evaluate Solomon, wow, what a guy. He took Israel to the peak. They were the most prosperous nation on the planet Earth at the time. So much so the Queen of Sheba heard the stories, couldn't believe it, and went and visited. And when she got there, she's blown away. She says, half of it wasn't even told me. The incredible prosperity of Solomon. Take a good look at David, his father. What a disaster. Adultery, murder, lying. You make a long list. And you look at his kingdom. What a mess. The way we would look at it, right? Something very strange. When you study the scriptural presentation of Solomon, well, let's take David first. You can't find a page in the Bible, hardly, that doesn't make positive, exalted reference to David. We would look at him in secular terms and say, he was a disaster. Neat guy, but a disaster. Right? Not in God's eyes. He's, you know, the house of David is what it's all about. You take a look at Solomon, especially in the New Testament, it's always, when, it, when he's mentioned, it's as a backhanded compliment. Notice that, it's always backhanded. The lily of the fields are not arrayed like he. It's always sort of an adverse standard of comparison in God's terms. So we look at that and say, gee, that's strange. God's perception is quite different than our perception would be. Well, you can bank on that. <laughs> it's interesting to notice everybody remembers what Solomon asked for. What would you have? Wealth, all these things. I'd like to have wisdom to, to, to rule my people better. Well said. He gave him wisdom and wealth also. Of course, yet in his late life, he, with all the foreign wives, he became apostate. You know the story. What did David ask for? You know, you can't find it in, in the Kings or Chronicles, you know, him specifically that dialogue. But you can figure out what he asked for. How does Psalm 23 end? 
that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, what David wanted was fellowship. That's why God could say of David, there's a man after my own heart. That's what he wants of you and I, is fellowship. Now, it's interesting, of course, um, isn't that God's greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord. Didn't say serve. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and strength and mind. First love is the abandonment of all for the love that is abandoned all. First Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men, I have not love. Agape. I, and, you know, tinkling brat. You know the, go through it. Read it. Now, having said all of that, I want to double back on the first part of this letter. What's the name of this church? Ephesus. Do you know what Ephesus means? Darling. Maiden of choice. That's what the term means. Say, whoa, that's kind of interesting. Because that's the main burden of the letter and even the name of the city that the church is in. Ephesus speaks to that theme in in this uh, remarkable letter. Going on, verse 5. Here's the exhortation now. Here's what Jesus tells him to do. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else... I will come to thee quickly and remove thy lampstand out of its place, except thou repent. Admonition in three parts. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember from whence thou was fallen. Do you remember how you first felt when you discovered Jesus Christ? That's what God would have you recapture. The joy of your salvation. And it says, and repent. The aorist tense here implies that it would envision no delay. And do the first works, or repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. That's his admonition. Or he'll take the lampstand out of its place, right? Doesn't say they're going to lose their salvation. Let's not get into that one. But their witness is gone. How many of you have met a Christian from the city of Ephesus? See, it's interesting, isn't it? Is there a church there? Not to my knowledge. In other words, the lampstand has been removed. Verse 6 is interesting. He adds another positive here. A mysterious one. Jesus continues, verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And here's a mystery, because as many scholars wrestle with this one. There are some ancient authorities that assume that this had to do with some sect. And I personally believe this is partly due to a misunderstanding. But in any case, Irenaeus alleges that there was a sect founded by Nicholas of Antioch, who was one of the seven deacons of Acts uh, 6. Uh, and Tertullian also describes the sect as Gnostics and Libertines. Clement of Alexander refers to their unbridled and excessive lusts. I think the problem will occur when we get to a later letter. We'll find this comes up again, and the, and, and the doctrines of Balaam are tied there. But if you look carefully, they're two different issues, not the same. And I think this may have been an attempt by the early church, presuming that this had something to do with what comes up later. So most scholars, most commentators today believe, I think, that the Nicolaitans are simply an untranslated word. It comes from two Greek words, nekeo, which means to conquer, and laos, or laos, which refers to people, like the laity. 
to rule over the laity is what the word implies. Now it's interesting that one of the tragedies of the church was the emergence in early years of the concept of the clergy, the concept that they were above the people. And that's really tragic. Because Jesus went to some lengths in John 13 to lay out his org chart. He took a basin of water and a towel. And what did he do? Remember in John 13? Washed their feet. They were shocked. That was something that a servant did. And here's the Lord himself washes their feet. And then explains. You can read it for yourself. In the interest of time, I'll just leave it in summary form. He was setting an example that that's what they were to do with one another. The concept of the early church, the church in Acts, was one of ministering to one another. And today we have ranks, reserved parking places. Uh, you, know the, you know the drill. The whole concept of the clergy. Well, I'm a man of the cloth. And I'm not trying to disparage. Uh, but on the other hand, we should recognize that's a... Up, there's a large distance between the, the assumptions we operate under and what Jesus Christ intended. Now the tragedy will occur. See, here in, in Ephesus, he commends them because they hated that. They wouldn't allow that. You see, he commends them because thou hatest the deeds of Nicolaus, which I also hate, Jesus says. We're going to discover <laughs> that when we get to Pergamos, these deeds become doctrines. And we'll understand the Nicolaitans better when we get to the letter of Pergamos, the letter after next. And it's going to have some interesting, interesting lessons for us. Because Pergamos also sets the stage for some other things. And then we get to this interesting phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And we're going to encounter that phrase in each letter. And as it goes, it'll increasingly become a mystery. And we get to the fourth letter, it changes its structural position. And we'll talk about a number of changes. You'll discover the first three letters have some interesting things in common as to what they don't say. And the last four letters have some things that they include the first three didn't. I'm going to suggest the possibility that there's some discoveries in all of that. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At this point, though, at least we know two things. It's to all the churches... What Jesus said to the Ephesian church applies to all churches. The Spirit said to apply it to all churches. It also says, he that hath an ear. It applies to you and I. Every one of us in this room may have been graded pretty highly in our ability to reject doctrine which does not conform to the Word of God. Praise God for that. That's great. And yet, have we lost our first love? As you drive home tonight, I want you to think about that. Are you in love with our Redeemer? By the way, this he that hath an ear phrase occurs outside these letters in the New Testament. I'll give you one guess. How many times does it appear? Good guess. And then the closing little P.S. on here. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Boy, there's a lot behind this one. The tree of life. We all encountered that in Genesis, remember? Tree of life in Genesis. We don't encounter it anywhere else until the book of Revelation later on. This is going to surface again. Tree of life. Strange, strange mystery. 
Bible is really a story of two trees. And I don't mean the two trees in Eden. One of the trees was in Eden, the tree of life. The other tree was a cross erected in Judea 1900 years ago. Story of two trees. Also a story of two gardens. Adam was placed in the first garden, right? We all know the story. The last Adam was at another garden called Gethsemane. And we'll understand that better when we get to Revelation 5. You really won't understand the cross until we see understand Revelation 5 and vice versa. But it's interesting, this idea of an ancient tree is obviously not only a biblical concept, it's amazing how often that thought occurs in pagan literature. The Homa tree of the Persians growing at the spring, uh, Arduser, which comes from the throne of God. The Halpasoma tree of the Hindus, which furnished the water of immortality, the libation of the gods. The Tuba tree of the Arabs. The Lotus tree of the Greeks. The tree of Assyrian culture adorned by uh, royal figures and guarded by genies, similar to the cherubim and so forth. So it's interesting if you study this sort of thing how this, this echoes ancient truth. And we could spend a lot of time on this, and I'll just give you a few thoughts to think about. It's interesting that when Adam fell, he was denied access to that tree. And many people assume that that was one of the burdens of the fact that he fell. And you and I have that same genetic defect. If Adam was here and he fell down there and then has offspring, where are we? Down there. And it took the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption to restore us. It's interesting that had Adam been able to have access to that tree, the implication seems to be that he would have remained in an unfallen state throughout eternity. It was only through his death and then the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he could be redeemed. It's interesting that when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, two cherubim are put there to guard the way to the tree of life. And most of us are taught or presume that, that was the cherubim were there to keep Adam out. That's sort of the way we read the story. I suggest that's naive. It wouldn't have taken two cherubim to keep Adam out of the garden. How many would have taken? A tenth of one or something. I mean, you know, ter- cherubim are tough, tough, you know, an angel is a tough dude. One angel killed 185,000 Syrians after dinner one night. Uh, uh, you know, these guys, you don't mess around with angels. Cherubim are super angels. Huh? Why two cherubim guarding the way of the tree? See, they weren't guarding the tree of life. They're guarding the way of the tree of life. And part of the whole mystery plan of God is that that tree, the way to that tree has been guarded so that you and I can have access to it. And that's what Revelation is going to deal with. Because that tree that was available to Adam before he fell will be available to you and I in Revelation 22. So there's a lot going on here. And as you start, as you ponder Adam and his fall, the question I love to give people, prove to me that Adam only lived in three dimensions. The answer is you can't do it. And what that re- I'm not saying he lived anymore. I'm saying we only know the creation post-curse. We only know the creation in terms that apply after they fell. After the Nachash, the shining one, that later becomes a servant, has deceived Eve and they did the unpardonable thing. And it's interesting that all that we know is post-curse. Adam walked with God. He was perfect. He was clothed with light. Interesting. And 
Adam was created in the image of God. You and I are created in the image of Adam. Read the text carefully sometime. That's the predicament. You and I have a genetic defect. And it's not HIV that I'm talking about. It's one that has a blood remedy, fortunately. It's funny, I was talking about this, you know, pastors having parking places earlier. I have an irresistible temptation. We have a few parking places that are very convenient to the door. And uh, to avoid some well-meaning person putting my name on one of them, I think I'm going to go out there with a stencil and say, KJV only, on the first four or five of those. See? King James Version only, see? NIV people can park along the fence. That's nice. <laughs> How many of you are NIV positive? Are there any? Okay. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. I have no problem with the NIV. I think you'll just outgrow it. That's all. Okay, we saw Paul's warning in Acts. We saw John's letters. And one of the questions you want to think about is, where is Ephesus' lampstand today? Ephesus is now over six miles from the sea. In fact, it's more than that by now. This is an old reference. One of the things that I think we're going to learn as we go through the seven churches, we obviously won't start uh, the letter to Smyrna until next time. I encourage you to read between now and next time. Chapters 2 and 3, read all the letters so they become very comfortable to you. But we'll primarily take the next couple of churches next time. We won't go one at a time. It'll take too long. We'll take about two next time. But it's interesting, the only reliable model, in addition, of course, to applying the exhortation that Jesus puts in Revelation 2 and 3, the only real reliable model for the church is the book of Acts and, and Revelation 2 and 3. Attempts to look at church patterns and so forth from the so-called church fathers, Antonicene fathers and so forth, is dangerous because even then, even their practices uh, may not have had his approval. You want to measure everything by the book of Acts and Revelation 2 and 3. And if you go through the book of Acts and study it carefully, you'll discover at least four primary obsessions, preoccupations by the early church leadership. The first thing that you see everywhere is a focus on the teaching of the Word of God. You take that for granted and yet don't. Read Acts carefully, you'll notice how they are absorbed with the teaching of the Word of God. It's interesting, if you study Genesis 3, Satan's attack is first to challenge God's authority of His Word. And the next step is to denigrate His character. And just watch it happen in our society today. Watch guys with many fancy degrees, PhDs and H2SO4s behind their name, voting on what Jesus really said. Come on. In Acts, they use the Scripture to authenticate their experiences. Think about that. Got experiences? Great. Are they authentic according to the yardstick of Scripture? Interesting. They had a deep commitment to assembly and worship. A deep commitment to assembly and worship. They had a commitment to the breaking of bread together. The breaking of bread. The assembly and worship, the communication, the communion. The Greek word is koinonia which is one reason we call our little ministry going in the house. This do in remembrance of me, he says. And, of course, the heavy artillery of these early, early leadership was prayer. Prayer. Heavy commitment to prayer. So in that vein, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, you've warned us of seducing spirits and of doctrines of demons in these last days. So, Father, we turn to you earnestly, asking you to help us to be diligent in testing the spirits. Help us, Father, to be so centered on your word 
that we will not be misled by those who seek to deceive us. And yet, Father, help us to understand the lessons of your church at Ephesus. Help us to be so committed to devotion, not just doctrine. Father, each of us, this night, right now, ask you to help us regain our first love, that espousal love, that joy of our salvation. Father, we ask this that we might indeed be pleasing in thy sight, that we indeed might, through the cleansing of his shed blood and the cleansing of your Holy Spirit, be in fellowship with you, Father. And that our lampstand also might burn brightly in our dark and hurting world. So, Father, we commit ourselves in the name of he who holds us in his nail-scarred hands and never lets us go. Indeed, Father, we come before you in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.